Here's the island we're looking for. The rest of the shoreline is sheer precipice, hundreds of feet high. And across the base of that peninsula, cutting it off from the rest of the island, is a wall. A wall? Built so long ago that the people who lived there have slipped back, forgotten the higher civilization that built it. But that wall is as strong today as it was centuries ago. They need it. Why? There's something on the other side of it. Something they fear. Did you ever hear of Kong? I'm not exhibiting a freak, a monstrosity of nature, but a milestone in the development of life. The darkness before the dawn of man. Don't, don't be afraid. It's only a ba -ba 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 baboon. Listen to him, brothers and sisters. He's speaking to you. Can you understand what he says, or have you forgotten? I have relearned his language. Listen. Merge papala padivre. Kudu Aeons of ages passed. There came a time when a four-legged thing walked upright. Behold, first man. Heresy. Heresy. I tell you, I will prove your kinship with the ape. Welcome to Voice Print Identification. It's 2001. A Space Policy. I'm Wes. And I'm Brad. You are cleared through voice print identification. Open the pod bay doors, please, So the species in the dawn of man, beginning the book and the film of 2001, The Space Odyssey, is supposed to be Australopithecus africanus, which is our oldest known link to the ape. And the oldest ancestor that we consider um, a step along our long deserted silk road from ape to modern human and the two schmucks that are talking to you now <laughs> the oldest known australopithecus skeleton that we have and it's a complete skeleton was found by ron clark and his associates in the 90s he actually first stumbled across it when he was going through a box of old bones in the university of johannesburg an associate came up to him while he was going through there. He he was picking he was picking apart these bones, and he came to a realization that actually some of them fit together like a jigsaw puzzle. Now this never happens. <laughs> he started noticing that more and more of these pieces fit together. Oh my God! This was one foot, and part of another foot that is the same size. At least the pieces are the same size, and. When that's your job, that's the only thing you have to go on. You're measuring bone density, you're measuring age, you're measuring size, and you're measuring uh, sedimentary layering and wear on the object itself. So when you notice something like that, this is a revelation. So his colleague came up to him while he was 
sorting through these bones and he's looking here i've got this whole foot here it's it's like you know it, and of course it was a giant big foot because it's astropithecus astropithecus it's it's just like bigfoot so so the other guy said well you should call it littlefoot ha 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 well the name stuck and so littlefoot is the name that we have of the oldest skeleton of our oldest known ancestor a giant by the way a seven foot tall giant it wasn't discovered all in one piece by the way it was discovered in the Sturk Fontaine Caves. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site, by the way. But the Sturk Fontaine Caves is, if, if anything could be assigned to the term Garden of Eden, that's it right now. I mean, that is where all of the signs of the birthplace of, of our human civilization are coming from. We all know that Africa is the birthplace of, of civilization and birthplace of, of humanity. But South Africa, specifically in the Sturkfontein Caves, provides us with the most complete mummified resource of our ancient relatives. And over the course of years, they went back, they sanded through layers and layers and layers laterally. Not down, but laterally, because they found it at a certain depth. So they were maintaining that depth horizontally uh, to try and find something in, of that same age. Now, Brad, our, um, our good buddy, Littlefoot. Yes. Our specimen, Australopithecus. Yes. Would they be able to use tools in the sense that we see in the beginning of the film uh, with, with Moon Watcher picking up the bone and kind of experimenting with how it, it's working physically? We didn't used to think so, but times have changed, and with that, what we're discovering alongside the bodies and what we're discovering that may actually be dating closer to the age of the skeletons they're next to are instruments, um, wood, stone, and otherwise, which potentially could have been tools. The fact of how close they are, the, the problem is, is that um, like Littlefoot and other examples the skeleton wasn't found intact because it had been preserved through um uh through a calcification or a mineralization was it mineralization. was it was a full fossil mineralization. okay so yeah yeah so and so therefore they were they were they were standing through a rock flow and finding one little bit at a time working laterally through a tunnel until they came across all the bones. But they also came across other objects that could potentially have dated to that same time, but they weren't close enough to the skeleton to say, I mean, he wasn't like holding his car keys in his hand, for example. So we don't know. <clears throat> but like you were saying, but, the, uh, the way that the sedimentary earth works, you can date based on relative objects found within that same stratus. Okay, so there's three different dating methods now <clears throat> um, that are that are popular, and there's enough precedence for them being used to where they're accepted pretty widely through the scientific community. Um, we talked about 
carbon dating and zircon dating uh, there's also a way to date via ultraviolet light as a a variable but yeah. but check this out it's called luminescence dating whoa and it is so useful for geologists and archaeologists because it is a very very scientifically way to accurately date inorganic uh, mineral grains and the way they do it is they're able to detect the last time a specific sample was exposed to sunlight or sunlight or sufficient heating i.e a fire or an explosion or something like that but yes yes and that is the best combination um it is able to clock in now that the problem is these samples are destroyed it's nothing of any kind of archaeological um value or any kind of like they're they're not taking bits of roman pottery you know they, they can identify that with an eyeball or uh some some of our good friends can probably do it by hand but this is a really quick way to date what sediment layer that you're um, harvesting goods out of. And I believe they've used it as early as 1963. Wow. So the the big thing (laughs) is everything on the surface of the earth to some degree is getting blasted with photons being emitted from the sun. And um, they're absorbing radioactive elements because of this. You remember on the previous episode when I was telling you about the metal, um, that if it's not exposed to, you know, the... The The nuclear... Yes, yes, exactly. Nuclear isotopes. Yes. And um, very much the same way, this uses... uh, a ratio of kind of radioactive elements coming from cosmic rays and they're able to uh, use a chart where Mm. depending on how much radiation has been absorbed by that particular mineral Mm -hmm. they can cross-reference it versus the decay of those radioactive Mm -hmm. elements to say it was exposed to sun at this point. These elements were endued into that um, particular sample Mm -hmm. and they've decayed to this degree. So we know it is such and such years old. No no organic components are required. Um, It, it just seems like a, a much more efficient way to. Yeah. Since 1991, I've been directing excavations and some research at Stokefontein Caves. Most of my time has been taken up with a very important discovery, that of a complete skeleton of an Australopithecus that is well known as Littlefoot. It is the only complete or virtually complete Australopithecus skeleton from anywhere. 
And furthermore, it is the oldest Australopithecus in southern Africa, and it has been dated to 3.67 million years ago. So it's going to tell us a lot about our early ancestry. Littlefoot was found in uh, 1997 by um, myself and Stephen Motsumi and Nkwani Malefi. We located it deep within the Sturkfontein Caves where we began excavating. I was going through some boxes of material that was blasted out by lime miners probably in the 1920s and I discovered an ankle bone, a talus as we call it, of a hominid. And I said, good grief, what's this doing here? But then I found three more bones that linked onto it, leading down towards the big toe. At Witts University Medical School, I discovered more of the same foot and also parts of the lower legs. So this made me realize that the rest of the skeleton might still be in the cave. So I gave a cast of the lower tibia or shin bone to my two assistants, Stephen Motsumi and Nkwani Malefi, and asked them to go down in the cave with torches and see if they could find anywhere that piece would fit on. Well, after one and a half days of searching in the dark with their handheld lamps, surprisingly, they found it. The bones, uh, when we first found them, we were expecting to find everything just lying there, all connected. It didn't work that way. We found not only that the bones were extremely soft, powdery and flaky, but they were embedded in a natural concrete that we call breccia, extremely hard. Didn't find any more until I concluded that the rest of it must have fallen through to a lower level millions of years ago and then been sealed in by a very thick flowstone. So we chiseled through that flowstone and then we found more of the skeleton. By that stage we were using very fine tools, something we call an air scribe, which is a little pneumatically driven needle. Uh, so we were working away a grain at a time, grains of rock at a time. There is always some degree of luck involved in the discovery of especially a, a major fossil find. Usually the luck is on the side of the discoverer, him or herself. In this case, I think one can easily make the case that it was the fossil, Littlefoot itself, that was lucky to be discovered by Ron Clark. It, it's an incredibly skilled process um, that is involved uh, in requiring a remarkable knowledge of anatomy, incredible uh, patience, uh, and very steady hands. Uh, I like to refer to Ron as the paleosurgeon, uh, for he has, um, throughout his career, uh, demonstrated uh, unparalleled ability to reconstruct very fragmentary and very important fossil hominid uh, finds. Uh, Littlefoot was lucky to have waited for 3.67 million years for Ron to come around and find her. So here in our third archaeological dig, We've got some flash news that's come in from the last few weeks that has completely rocked the boat and the reason why we decided to go ahead and do this series right now. Um, and 
Regarding those things, we first have to go back to the Sturkfontein Caves in terms of the preserved hominids that we've gotten out of there, including Littlefoot and also Mrs. Pless. Mrs. Pless was discovered in 1927. Uh, there's an interesting controversy about whether or not Mrs. Pless could even potentially be Mr. Pless. And this has to do with CT scans. So they were doing CT scans on Mrs. Plez 30, 40 years ago at one to two millimeter resolution. Now that they're able to do sub-millimeter resolution CT scans, they've put the Mrs. Plez skull back under the scanner and they've come up with some interesting results, which is for one thing, there's an asymmetry on the left side of the brain. So it's right-handed potentially because the enlarged left hemisphere guides the right hand. There was some damage to Mrs. Plaz in the 60s from some dilute acetic acid. So the bone was kind of eaten away somewhat, actually. But thankfully now it's at the Diphthong Museum of Natural History and well, well watched in South Africa. 10 micron CT scan. So that's one tenth of the size of a human hair, which is pretty incredible. Um, they were thinking Mrs. Plaz dated from about 2.1 to 2.5 million years ago. Actually, according to this new dating technique, probably 3.4 to 3.7 million years old. Thanks to cosmogenic nuclide dating, it, it has to do with the rock, Brescia rock. Apparently Brescia rock is sedimentary, but also very solid and, and will bind and harden fast to preserve bones intact around it. It almost um, seems like a concrete mixture where it's got rock aggregate and then sedimentary fine grains mixed in mm. with it. What they're doing now, they're measuring the cosmogenic nucleides within the rock. And based on this dating technique, this completely changes the game of how far back we could really be looking for this species. And we're specifically looking at Australopithecus, right? Thank you, yes. What you told me when you came into my shop. Bigfoot can come live with us. We'll accept the responsibility. <laughs> can you imagine what a Bigfoot would do to your home? <laughs> yeah, well, I can. You're good people. I'm going to say this once. I'm going to say it's simple. And I hope to God, for your sakes, you all listen. There are no abominable snowmen. There are no Sasquatches. There are no big feet. There, there are different theories about the Australopithecus becoming bipedal. Why and, and how that occurred. Some think that it was the changing environment around them. Some people think that it was due to an evolving brain size or that there, it was changing their habits strategically, allowing them to hunt by freeing up the front two limbs. And how closely would you say they resemble modern humans? A very hairy Roddy McDowell from the Planet of the Apes. I for one grant you that this creature cannot have come from another planet, but this much is certain. I discovered evidence of a simian culture that existed long before the sacred scrolls were written. Like a, like a fully upright, slightly uh, uh, softened-featured ape, but um, 
and with and a, I guess to that a, um, to that juxtaposition with Kubrick's interpretation of the Great Ape, would they be, you know, full body coated in hair like that, or anatomically, supposedly, are we looking at something closer to like a modern man? Supposedly, we're looking at something that's still very hairy. We're looking at someone who is slightly stooped. I was going to also... say stooped. You were oh, reading my mind. Perfect. That's wonderful. So yes. they, they do because they're still coming out of that kind of um, ground motion where they are using knuckle-based and long arm movements for fast travel. And uh, they're, they're starting to, like you said, entertain the idea of bipedal movement. This also comes with an exchange. It's actually um, referred to as the birth canal dilemma, where because the pelvis is shifting position in evolving, you're, you're, you're shrinking the size of the birth canal as you're moving upright. And that's one reason. Did it affect you, birth rates? Yeah, I think that's... Well, it's interesting because what what is what is believed now is that um, it's why modern humans need usually more than one person or at least one person to help deliver the birth is because the, the average size of the head of the baby is about the size of the birth canal. The interesting thing that happens then in evolutionary biology is that potentially the reason that human babies brains are only 25 percent developed on average when they're born as opposed to 50 percent with uh, other hominins also the impetus for the loose joints yes yeah absolutely because they also had to be born sooner so we're we as humans are born a lot quicker than others in our primate family because one of the trade-offs in this whole deal evolutionarily was that you got to get this baby out quicker because if it grows much more then it won't you know <laughs> you won't it won't be able to come out anymore you know oh, it, wow. and and therefore um we we come into this world sooner less developed and more vulnerable much more like dogs and cats and a few other species like that um and we also mature at a much longer rate. And they discovered this is also true in Australopithecus and also true in Neanderthal, which is the rate of growth and development basically stunts at age nine or 10. And then for a few years it stops and then it shoots off when puberty takes off. Now this is a common trait that they believe evolutionarily has to do with the fact that the human has had to take longer to fully mature and fully develop because of the amount of time that it takes for our brains to fully develop, which is up to the age of 25. And also in terms of our physical development, because we're, because we're taking on in that maturity, a frame that requires an amount of sustenance. I mean, talk about brain food. Uh, the brain requires, if I'm not mistaken about 20 to 25 percent of your daily caloric intake thinking and actually um a lot of that processing power is going directly to eyesight um mm. so i imagine 
Well, you know how they talk about how monks meditating can last so much longer without food and water? If you're mm-hmm. able to shut down your senses to a point of just like the equivalent of emotional absolute zero, you're burning almost no calories. Mm. But if you're sitting there strategizing, playing video games or watching an intense movie, you're burning a ton of calories. You're having emotions, your eyes are watching things. You, uh, you, you know, you might be just fidgeting or just having small little uh, micro movements that are contributing to energy drain. So human gestational period, typically nine months, um Australopithecus africanus looking at what like 11 months or something like that yeah i think at least 11 to 12 months with that correlation can you take a guesstimate of what a kangaroo's gestational period is Ooh, ooh. okay i'm just gonna throw something out there and sure. say five and a half months Ooh. well <clears throat> so their gestational period is approximately 36 days. <gasps> what? And, and then they are in the pouch for seven to eight months, I believe. Oh, wow. 36-day gestational period from conception to birth. That's so this is getting out, and then it's just living in the pouch. It really is like howling three the marsupials. Oh, no. We are <laughs> We cannot we cannot put any howling three references in our in our very reputable film podcast. No, no, we no, cannot no, do that. No. Help me! They're moving! Help me! Help me change! Give me the strength! Help me change into the big one! They're uh, but I thought that was so fascinating. Yes. What a short time. So but, I, I thought it was going to be like a really drawn out process. No, they're born immediately and then they're in the pouch. And usually they start hopping out of there around seven to eight months. Is that a trait of marsupials? I haven't cross-referenced it with anything other than red, kangaroo, red and gray kangaroos both share that. Um, but yeah, that'd be interesting to look that, at for wow. sure. But, but especially it's just interesting that they were outcompeted by mammals because you would think being able to, to give live birth quickly. Now, again, we'd have to check the other species. It may not be the same case, yeah. um, but they were starved to death essentially by small mammals from the upper continent rats and things like that it's wonderful yeah also your mrs plus yeah um which you talked about you know they may have misidentified blah blah blah. why does that happen all the time but i was uh recently listening to something else that was talking about the red lady Mm. have you ever heard of the red lady no from wales Really? Red Lady of Pavidland. Huh. And uh, she was thought to be um, a Roman prostitute mm-hmm. that was murdered and thrown in a cave. Yeah? Uh, no. No. <laughs> Back in 1823, uh, an archaeologist named William Buckland found her remains in a cave. 
Hmm. And basically most archaeology was in its very beginning stages at that point. Uh, there wasn't a lot of context or standardization across the board. So people really could just say whatever they thought. And that's just kind of how it went. Um, so the Red Lady of Pavidland was labeled as a female prostitute from the Roman era. And they were happy with that. What's really interesting is the second look at it. Uh, the skeletal remains are covered in a red ochre uh, used as a dye. So this was applied, obviously, after the person had perished, um, which caused further investigation because this must have been a burial. Hmm. And further investigation into the original cave where William Buckland found this uh, skeleton, they also found the remains of mammoth. <gasps> And our Red Lady of Pavitland, upon further uh, investigation, was a young male. What? They, they, they can only speculate, but they think he died during the hunt, and they buried him with some of the bones of a mammoth and colored his bones in the ochre as a sign of respect. Huh. They've dated it around um, the Upper Paleolithic Age, 33,000 years ago <laughs> isn't that cool that's amazing so that so that <laughs> that's hysterical instead of a roman prostitute mm-hmm. it was a pleistocene hunter <laughs> buried with a mammoth that's insane it is <laughs> and the coloring of the bones is what's so interesting to me um because you know, later on, they're able to do chemical detail analysis of, of the whole sighting. Another sign uh, of ritual, though. Ritual, yeah. ritual burial. It was also found with some uh, periwinkle shells buried with it <sighs> and um, mm. some fragments of ivory rods, which they think may have been some kind of adornment that was broken apart um, you know, over time, mm. but they couldn't quite identify if it was... Uh, ceremonial or if it was um, you know decorative or necessarily yeah. was. well we're just finding out that the Neanderthals <clears throat> lived 50,000 years longer than we previously thought in Kenya the Rift Valley province yeah yeah 3.3 million years ago that technically be the oldest but the what you were talking about earlier was the the Lomequian tools at Lomequai right yes okay so tool making perhaps goes back a million years farther than we previously thought? And a lot of this stems from new research. The brush is really interesting because that kind of sedimentary rock, like it only happens in certain parts of the world. There's a high chance that you're going to find human remains in it because it is usually found in calderas from collapsed mm. volcanoes. Mm-hmm. It can be made from landslides. There's also evidence of it happening from like impact events, such as asteroid impacts. Really? And the origin of the, the term literally means rubble. <laughs> it just, it, and that is, in fact, what it looks like. It looks like um, if you've ever seen concrete deteriorate to the point where hunks of it are coming off where you can see the fine grain and the big chunks of gravel in it Mm. that's exactly what it looks like and geologic processes of weathering you know like 
wind, acidic rain, and tectonic activity would absolutely pulverize the stuff, but it would probably be a really nice cast for bones or, mm. you know, any kind of, uh, I don't, I don't think any organic material other than calcium enriched skeleton fragments or something like that would be able to survive it, but yeah, a good preservative and breaks apart pretty easily. And how lucky that that's what it, they were preserved in. Since 2012, we've been busy with the preparation of the bones in the laboratory, cleaning out all the fragments and reconstructing them. So the other incredible discovery recently in the last year or so has been the Dragon Man. The Dragon Man, or Homo Longi, as it's, as it's been classified, uh, was discovered in China in 1933 but uh, it's only recently known about because there was a, a construction worker working on a bridge near the town of Harbin in China um, and he dug up this skull and he knew how valuable it was because the Peking man had been found only four years earlier and that skull had completely uh, it had entranced the world and had really set uh, uh, China ablaze with um, with anthropology and archaeology. But this is 1933, and the territory was under the control of the Empire of Japan. So he didn't report it. He knew exactly how important this was. So he went and hid it in a well. Flesh forward 85 years in 2018 on his deathbed when he confessed to his family, when he told his family and he told them where it was, where the well was. So they went down, they went to the well, went down in there and they found it. Lo and behold, it was there and they donated it to the Geoscience Museum of Habri Geological University um, anonymously. <laughs> Because uh, they didn't want the publicity Absolutely. for the family. Um, so it's known as the Harbin Cranium because that's where it was originally found by the man uh, in the Longjiang region. So Homo Longi, Longjiang, translates to Dragon River and thus Dragon Man. Dragon Man was like 146,000 to 309,000 years ago. He was male. He had a huge brain. 7% bigger than our brain, actually. Um, uh, kind of a combination of the early and the modern anatomical features that we have. Um, so a little unlike uh, most of us cousins uh, in the hominin family, he uh, was unique to be classified as a new species. Actually, if you think of him with his brow, his uh, cheekbone structure, his what they, they believe his nose to be and what they can gain from this skull, what his overall build might have been. Chances are, well, he looks a little bit like John Rhys Davies in uh, Gino Acevedo's makeup as Gimli in Lord of the Rings. Mm, stout. Stout. Very hardy and stout, blunt features. Soon, Master Elf, you will enjoy the fabled hospitality of the dwarves. Roaring fires, malt beer, red meat off the bone. But the thing is that Neanderthals and Dezinovans, which are our two closest known relatives in the family, 
they interbred. Neanderthals and humans interbred. We know this. We know, we have found uh, skeletons who have Neanderthal mothers and Dian and Dzinovan fathers, or Dian Neanderthal fathers and Dzinovan mothers. We and this is where it gets confusing. Dragon Man is really similar to this Dzinovan jaw fossil that they found in Tibet, as well as uh, the Dali Man, which is not named after uh, the Great Salvador but rather the region where it was found in, in China. It looks like, is it a Homo sapien or is it a Homo deliensis? Like some are arguing that, you know, there's just a single lineage here because Neanderthal, like they had the protruded brow. The Homo sapiens and the dragon man actually have flatter faces than Neanderthal. So some others are saying that dragon man is Dzinovan and should not be classified as its own thing. Because the Tibetan jaw is Dzinovan, and thus, if it's so similar, then it's, you know, it's probably the same thing, just a different variation. But the Tibetan jaw and the dragon man have similar dental structure and the same number of teeth, hmm. um, which is actually one less than we have. We have one more molar, which is strange. <laughs> just one molar, not huh. two. And did you mention, are these, do these predate Australopiths? These are um, descendants. It was a branch, branch yes. descendant, right? Okay. And the Dzinovan's DNA is the closest to Neanderthals we found. But the dragon man is the closest to the Homo sapiens. But, <laughs> okay, so Homo sapiens and Dzinovan's were our closest relatives. Now we decided that Dzinovan's were probably the closest to us. But now dragon man is closer to us not only closer to us than it is to Dzinovans, but closer to us than Dzinovans were to Neanderthals, which means that <laughs> Dzinovans are closer related to Neanderthals than Neanderthals are related to us. But Neanderthals are less related to Dragon Man than Dragon Man is related to us. But Dragon Man, if he's not a Dzinovan, is not... I don't know. I've talked myself into a circle. <laughs> I I am with you. Now, I, I, I imagine that archaeologists a thousand years from now will hate us because a lot of our finds come from middens and from trash heaps uh, and, and ditches that used to align all these Roman roads. But uh, we don't we don't really follow that architecture mm. anymore. And all of our waste is evacuated either to the oceans or to a landfill to be completely mixed together. And there is no uh, rhyme or reason to the archaeological finds. I mean, they'll have stuff at least hundreds of years apart from each other that are in the same landfill at that point. So, you know, that's what they're going to be excavating and it's going to be so hard for them to decipher a Furby from a, um, imagine they scrapped a Cracker Barrel and all of the antiques from that store got mixed in with the cash register. It is going to absolutely boggle the minds of future generations unless we keep close tabs on this trash. <laughs> There's an angle that I had never considered before. Garbage archaeology. That's what I want to be when I grow up, a garbage archaeologist. Listen, that's where we find out what they were eating, 
um, you know, what was important to him, what wasn't. Um, all, all these tombs that had great entities that were filled top to bottom with treasures and scrolls and uh, adorned with inscriptions, they are stripped bare. Um, we basically don't know anything about the people that were laid to rest them. And uh, then we have these middens, which are basically just holes in the ground where people threw their refuse. Um, take that as, uh, as you will, but um, that's where we find out the good stuff. And it's almost the same with uh, even pre, pre-human society, if we're looking at Let's say we're, we're studying dinosaurs and the fossils that we find have been completely mineralized. You know, we don't have the ability to um, sequence the DNA to show, oh, they, they were eating this type of grass or um, this type of animal or something like that. But um, through a, a particular fossil called a coprolite, which is a fossilized dinosaur poop, um, they're able to discern some of these materials just from visual sight and from um, analyzing the, uh, the the texture and makeup of its elements. It's very interesting. Poop is a very, very diagnostic and um, archaeological gold mine. Is this West Indian lilac? Yes. We know they're toxic, but the animals don't eat them. You sure? Pretty sure. There's only one way to be positive. I'd have to see the dinosaurs dropping. Dino. Dropping? Dropping? From Clavius Base. This is Brad. And I'm Wes. Oh, signing off. Yeah. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Goodbye. Well, I said I love what you wrote, but I really love my crazy monkeys. Oh my God, they're crazy monkeys. They're little rhesus monkeys that have been tested on with hair care products and uh, McDonald's food. I think I'm in love with a monkey.